and they don't like the idea that we have we have bases and forces stationed in Asia that can reach out and touch them within a couple thousand miles and they have no ability to get near us. Uh, so they're building the capability to do that. They want to be an absolute equal and they want to be able to discuss policy and you know the, the preference would be to actually delineate sectors and spheres of interest in Asia. And quite frankly, we are not going to do that. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. And for this episode, I had a chance to talk to Larry Wurzel. He is a retired army officer and a scholar who has spent much of his career, both in uniform and since retiring, studying China. He also has some really extraordinary first-hand experience with China and the Chinese military. He joined me for this episode so we could talk about China. As U.S. leaders increasingly and publicly label China as America's pacing threat, it's also increasingly critical that we do everything we can to understand China, its leadership, its strategic objectives, its military capabilities, and both its strengths and its weaknesses. We touch on all of those subjects in the conversation you're about to hear. Before we get to it, though, as always, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a second, please leave a rating or give it a review, which really does help us reach new listeners. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Larry Wurzel. Larry, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the MWI podcast. We're going to talk about China. Um, but before we do, you've spent a great deal of your uh, professional career, both in uniform and and subsequently thinking about China, uh, writing about China, studying China. Um, you know, just by way of introduction, I guess, I wonder if you can kind of give listeners a little bit of information about your background and, and sort of how you got involved in, in you know, the, the China subject. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, the short of it is I quit high school at 17, never went back to my senior year and enlisted in the Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, I was a grunt, I was an infantryman uh, at a Marine barracks in Morocco and, um, in the 27th Marines uh, at Camp Pendleton. And the regimental sergeant major calls me in and says, you're going to Vietnamese language school. So I really got into, you know, Asian languages and culture in the sense of time. And then I did go to college for a while um, and went after getting married, having a, well, a kid and my wife pregnant, decided I needed to get back in the military and get a steady income. Uh, and uh, the Marine Corps, after three years, was not accepting Lance Corporal's E3s with a wife and two kids. So I literally walked across the hallway to the Army recruiter, slapped a DD-214 on the desk, and he says, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I mean... I was kind of interested in studying Chinese in college. And he says, if you'll enlist in the Army Security Agency, which then was part of the National Security Agency, I can have you in Vietnamese language school in 10 days, or in Chinese language school in 10 days. 
I said, done. Uh, as a former Marine, I did not have to go through basic training. So I drove right out to DLI with my wife and studied uh, 47 weeks of Chinese there. Signals intercept training at uh, Goodfellow Air Force Base in Texas, San Angelo, and then about three months of cryptography at NSA and went to Thailand on the um, Laotian border uh, where I worked on Chinese uh, military communications and got a couple of trips into Vietnam during Tet in 1972 out of that. Then uh, I went to OCS. Uh, got commissioned in the infantry. I got bored of sitting around with earphones on. And uh, after four years as a grunt, I called, uh, you know, I figured I knew how to run up a hill. I called infantry branch and said, I, I want a branch transfer to military intelligence. And I want human intelligence, not SIGINT. And they said, well, you could do that if you'll take an unaccompanied tour in Korea. Uh, so I spent a year as the S4 of the 1st and the 9th Infantry and went to the military intelligence officers advanced course and the um, counterintelligence human source intelligence course. And then to Hawaii, really as an intelligence analyst working on China and Vietnam. So they, anyway, I got, I got picked up as a foreign area officer, sent to Singapore and attended the National University of Singapore for a year. And then uh, did another couple of counterintelligence jobs and finally ended up in China as the assistant army attache as a major in uh, 1988 to 1990. Interesting time to be there. It was. We had the Tiananmen massacre. We had before that, uh, I was also a security assistance officer and delivered uh, ANTPQ-37 uh, mortar and artillery locating radars to the Chinese went out in the field with an artillery division for a month or so, uh, practicing, escorted lots of generals to the U.S., and, and relations were really close until Tiananmen. And then after this uh, FAO tour, what, what came next? Did you have other jobs where you were working on China? To, after two years, back to the Army staff, um, a human, human intelligence policy job, uh, I was the, I don't know if, you know, some of the people might know what a dwarf is. The director of the army staff has seven assistant directors and they're functional. Uh, my functional area was, um, uh, army, uh, panels and boards and, uh, foreign area officers and international. So uh, that put me back in the policy in China division. It was in the G3 or what was in uh, SSM, strategy plans and policy. Uh, then I was the military um, at what was Milpercent, PERSCOM, or now Human Resources Command. I was the colonel's assignments officer for about, uh, at the time, 350 foreign area officer colonels and about the same number of military intelligence officer colonels popped on a colonel's list and uh, called my old boss, who was the director of human intelligence and attaches and said, well, I'm ready to go back overseas. And he popped me into China again. And that was uh, 95 to 97. 
really 98. You know, you're, you're a bit unique uh, among certainly Army officers. Uh, the Army has a habit of moving people around um, from one job to another quite regularly, and there are clear and obvious good reasons to do that for career development and to create well-rounded leaders. Um, there aren't very many people who have a, um, an opportunity to kind of keep coming back to working on the same um, problem sets, so to speak. Um, but it kind of seems like uh, like you did have that opportunity. Would you say that sort of Asia focus was really it sort of defined uh, your time uh, serving in the army? Uh, that and counterintelligence, human intelligence. I really bounced back and forth. Uh, you really you don't see much advancement. Most CI officers and human people top out at lieutenant colonel. I think it was being a well two things: being a foreign area officer that uh, helped me get promoted to colonel. And, and quite frankly, in my enlisted time, uh, I, I was at Benning, uh, supported the ranger department, used to run with a couple of rangers and skydive with them. And we got assigned to Korea together. We assigned the Pentagon together. And two of them were on my board. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so I, mean, I mean, you know, that, that helps, you know. I mean, they, they were very frank with me. They said, uh, you know, you've got some really amazing classified uh, officer evaluation reports from intelligence things you did. Uh, but we were all grunts sitting that board. Everybody threw them out. We had to tell them about you as a, you know, as a ranger. Okay. So as I mentioned, we're going to talk about China um, um, today. And, you know, China has been referred to, you know, increasingly frequently by American leaders, uh, including national security leaders, as America's pacing threat. Um, as such, my first question is sort of what lens we should be looking through it as as a threat? You know, should we be thinking about it from, you know, from a military perspective, a, a political perspective, an economic perspective? You know, you know, the obvious answer to that is, well, all of the above and then some. Um, but, you know, what's the right balance? Um, which of those should we maybe be emphasizing a little bit more if we really want to understand uh, China, its place in the world and, and, you know, its relationship both today and, and going forward into the future with the United States? Well, I think um, it's fair to say the, the political and primarily economic and business side, to a certain extent, drives the relationship. Uh, we started out, we the United States and Congress, uh, started out uh, with two objectives, maybe three. One was uh, kind of a, a missionary zeal to convert the Chinese to Western democracy and see if we could get the Communist Party to uh, open up a little more, change its human rights policy. Second, you know, I mean, it goes right back to the really the 18th and 19th century, big business wanted to take advantage of a huge population and a large economy and purchasing power, a big market. And that really drove things. Uh, and, and finally, we had, um, we never had permanent normal trade relations with China, but trade developed, but we had a, a really a common set of strategic interests. Uh, the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. Uh, we were trying to end the war in Vietnam. Uh, well, let's go back to, you know, 72 to 75. We're trying to end the war in Vietnam. Nixon goes, 
didn't really get the outcome we wanted, but the Chinese were very helpful. Uh, Soviets invade Afghanistan. We work with them. I mean, there's books out on that. I don't have to go over that history. Uh, we, um, we, at the time, obviously, the Vietnamese army was massed on the Thai border. And, and I got sent over to Thailand to assess the size of that when I was in uh, PACOM, in the Intelligence Center Pacific, six weeks up and down that border. But, you know, the U.S. was not going to put it was not going to put troops back into Southeast Asia into combat. So the solution was a huge logistics package for the ties. Well, you know, arms, ammunition, munitions. Well, uh, the Chinese aren't stupid. They didn't like the Vietnamese either. And they did support part of Cambodia, the, the Cambodian regime. So I found myself meeting the Chinese army attache in Thailand quite often. I was an army captain. He was a lieutenant colonel and later a colonel. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he, we'd talk about what was going on and the interests. Uh, they, they, I mean, the, the Thais, rather, were very, I mean, they're, they're, they're clever about the way they do things. You know, I said, well, we're sending you 155s. We're sending in you the advanced rocket uh, or uh, wrap rounds, you know, the, the, the longer range rounds. So they said, okay, um, we're going to issue some combat gear, get your, you know, your field clothes, and you're going to go out to one of our fire bases on the border for two weeks. I said, fine, you know. Well, we could not range the Chinese weapons. The Chinese 155 guns outranged U.S. 155s by thousands of yards. So they, they, you know, I mean, they're not stupid people. They did this to show, you know, we, this is why we're working with the Chinese. You know, they said, how many light amphibious tanks do you have that can operate in southern Thailand? I said, none. Yeah. And they said, right, we're buying PT-76s from the Chinese. So it was a real uh, sense of reality. You know, we, we sold the radars, hoping the Chinese would move them up to the Soviet border Instead, they moved them south to the Vietnamese border and used them to shell Vietnam. Still in U.S. interest, even in, you know, 19, uh, well, that was, by then it was 87, 88. When we talk about the Chinese military, you know, you've had some some pretty um, interesting experiences, I know, uh, in the past working with China. If you look at, so you know, sort of the past 30, 40 years um, of Chinese military development, how did they sort of view the United States military? Well, uh, I mean, they studied us. They gathered intelligence when we gave it to them. Uh, I talked about this missionary zeal. I can remember when we delivered the radars, uh, I, I won't use his name, an Army four-star came over with a whole bunch of U.S. Army generals and uh, I was with the art Chinese artillery division commander. And, and I, I said to him, all right, you know, we don't want to screw this up. And he said, well, I'm not, I'm not taking both radars. I don't, I mean, you know, I don't want to break anything. And I said, you know, it's not going to work if you don't take both radars. We have to be able to, you know, coordinate and triangulate positions. So you got to take both radars. He says, okay. 
I mean, being an old battalion S4, we got ready for, I think it was a 200-mile road march with about 50 vehicles, including the radars. And I said, well, before we go, I'm going to look at the U.S. gear we just sold you. It didn't have any of the on-vehicle equipment there. You know, and I said, hey, sir, we, I was a major then. I said, we can't go anywhere without that. And he says, I'm not going to get that dirty and lose it. I mean, that's the way they fought. Uh, anyway, we, we finally, I convinced him to do that. We got through it. And the general said to me, I'm going to give them our, uh, I guess it was BBS, Battalion Brigade Simulation Software back in 88. And I said, General, you don't want to do that. Because I've watched him reverse engineer all kinds of crap. I was still a counterintelligence officer gathering intelligence. I, I said, they'll reverse engineer that and use it. Uh, to figure out how to invade Taiwan. And he says, you know, Major, my staff has advised me that this would endear us to the Chinese. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, <laughs> policies made in spite of intelligence. Um, and lo and behold, uh, in 1990, maybe it was five or six, I took Denny Reimer when he was chief of staff of the Army to uh, the Nanjing Army Command Academy, and they showed us, they were, they, even though it was after Tiananmen, the relationship was pretty good. And they took us down there and said, we want to show you our latest simulation system and, you know, what is a simulated command post. And lo and behold, it was BBS turned into Chinese for a Taiwan invasion scenario. So, that, I mean, that's just what they do. And if you don't realize that uh, they, at the time, saw us as the most advanced military in the world. We showed them that uh, during Desert Storm. We showed them what expeditionary logistics is like, and so did the British with the Falklands, and they studied that. Uh, we showed them precision munitions uh, in uh, both uh, Yugoslavia and uh, you know, in the Gulf Wars, and they they studied every bit of that and profited from it. So that gives us a you know a, a, an interesting perspective on kind of China's past, especially you know the Chinese military's past. If we switch gears now and kind of look forward, and I recognize that forecasting is often sort of a fool's errand, um, but I'm gonna I guess ask you to embark on that errand with me. If we're kind of looking forward. What does, in your you know sort of informed perspective, what does China want, um, certainly militarily, uh, but also more broadly? Well, uh, Xi Jinping's predecessor. Well, let's first start with in in international relations and global policy and grand strategy. They want to be an equal superpower, and they want to work with the Russians to. Uh, make it a multipolar world where the U.S. and the G7 and uh, the, the, the NATO Western allies don't dictate policy. They don't want to get rid of international institutions, but they want to use them to their advantage. Uh, and they've managed to insert loads of people into leadership positions in the U.N. So that covers the global thing. The second thing is... Um, their international economic interests have really expanded. Uh, 
and the Communist Party wants to stay in power. And there's kind of a, a bargain with the Chinese people. You know, they're going to be prosperous. There's not going to be any major economic downturns. There's going to be good employment. There's going to be manufacturing. And to do that, they need markets themselves. Um, and they need a peaceful environment. So they really don't want to go to war, but they want to be able to, um, the party leadership and the Central Military Commission want to be able to uh, have a, a, the capability, if necessary, of using military forces in support of foreign policy. They really didn't have that. Uh, they want to make sure that if they ever, for any reason, decide to go after Taiwan, uh, the United States is impeded from intervening. So that, that's been sort of what they've been working at from about the 90s, oh, until the early 2000s. Uh, now, I, if I had to look out five years, I could see them... Uh, They've already practiced it with company size uh, expeditionary elements with, uh, with air and Navy and Marines around uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Indonesia, uh, Suva Strait, around Lompoc, around Taiwan. But I could see them being able to do in five years what the French could do in Mali what the, um, the British are, are able to do, use the equivalent of a mu-sized element with logistics support and air support, um, and pretty much anywhere along their Belt and Road Initiative. Um, if Chinese interests are threatened, if they have to run... Uh, a non-combatant evacuation operation, which they did twice with great difficulty, but they know it's possible. And a mute for army guys is about 2,200 Marines and sailors. It's essentially an infantry battalion supported by artillery, uh, helicopters, air, amphibious vehicles, and a logistics element. You know, we also talk about um, Chinese objectives often whether or not you know their 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 objective near term or or their ultimate objective is sort of regional hegemony, uh, whether or not they want some degree of parity with the United States if they want to supersede the United States, um, we also have seen in recent years more and more expeditionary capabilities being fielded. China using uh, the People's Liberation Army uh, and the People's Liberation Liberation Army Navy. Um, abroad, uh, farther and farther afield in places like Africa, even in, in, in Latin America, um, to sort of pursue its interests. Um, you know, if we look at kind of all of those things, what do you think is most important? What are the sort of central objectives um, that, that China wants to achieve? Uh, my read is they want to be the dominant power in Asia. And, and uh it's kind of the relationship between a suzerain and a vassal state. They really don't want to invade and take over other countries. It goes back almost to the ninth century in China uh, and even earlier. All, all they, what, what they really want is to be able to lay down a policy line 
and have the other nations there understand if you don't do that, it's going to hurt you. It might hurt you economically. It might hurt you diplomatically. It might even hurt you militarily. Uh, but but not so much to, to you know, dominate, dominate. But they want to have a, a, a preponderant power in Asia more than us. Uh, they're developing, you know, they, they are really bothered by the fact that the U.S. has bases surrounding them. They call it uh, a, a containment policy. Uh, I mean, that was kind of our intent in the 50s <laughs> and, and even in the 70s. But the, the reality is with our uh, treaty agreements and exchanges of notes and partnerships in Asia, we sort of surround them. Uh, and they don't like the idea that we have uh, we have bases and forces stationed in Asia that can reach out and touch them within a couple thousand miles, and they have no ability to get near us. Uh, so they're building the capability to do that. They're developing relationships in Latin America. They're uh, developing close relationships around the Mediterranean and looking to develop ports in North Africa and Italy and Greece and Turkey. So we're, we, we, face, um, we face a real challenge, um, and it's not a direct military challenge, although, you know, if it ever came to it uh, over some issue or another, whether it's Taiwan or their claims over Japanese-administered uh, territory in the South China Sea, it could be very serious. You know, um... It's difficult, it seems, these days to talk about the U.S.-China relationship without some reference to uh, the Thucydides trap, Graham Allison's, um, you know, very well-known book. Um, but I'm actually reminded of, of, you know, another sort of idea of from, from Thucydides, this idea that states are motivated by fear, honor, and interest. And, and when you say that, when you talk about the fact that Chinese is acutely aware of the fact that the U.S. has bases in close proximity to the Chinese mainland, and China does not have um, sort of reciprocal, um, you know, basing arrangements anywhere near the, the U.S. homeland, um, you know, that, that seems to sort of fall into, perhaps you could say it's interest. Um, maybe there's an element of fear. There's also an honor. There's a lack of parity, a lack of that, you know, that maybe indicates sort of a lack of respect. I, you know, not to psychoanalyze Beijing, um, necessarily, but of those, you know, if we talk about fear, honor, and interest, which of those are most motivating, uh, for China? Well, let, let me start out by saying they reject the whole Thucydides trap thesis. They, they think they can rise without going to war. Um, but uh, they're going to they're gonna stand up for their own interests and develop the capability to do so. Um, at, at the same time, uh, they do have this sense of history of being the dominant power in what was the known world. Western emperors came and gave him tribute. The emperor of Japan gave him tribute. The uh, emperors in Vietnam gave him tribute. The kings of India and Thailand gave him tribute. So they, there's this sense of history and embedded culture that, that in a sense informs that pride. Okay. 
And how much does, you know, resource needs or perceived resource needs feed into this access to things like hydrocarbons and, and rare earth minerals, things of that nature? Well, they, they need those. They have plenty of rare earth minerals, but they want more. Uh, um, the, the economic policies that had come out in the past, I would say, three to four years, call for them uh, not only to develop markets around the world, but also to get what they need from those markets, manufacture from it, sell it in China or sell it back to those markets, while at the same time limiting the ability of certain foreign countries to have access to the Chinese market. So, for instance, the U.S. companies that are doing really well in China are the ones that have joint ventures. Uh, but they walk a fine line because they have to turn over data, technical information, manufacturing know-how, and then they eventually they get cut out. I mean, I had a, a very interesting conversation with the president of uh, a German electronics and military equipment manufacturing company in China in, uh, oh God, it must have been. 88 or 89. I mean, I, I knew the, the, the German defense attache and army attache very well. I was, we were all pissed off in the embassy that the Germans were selling a certain radar to the Chinese. And he said, well, the president's that company is coming. I said, what's the possibility of talking to him about that policy? And, and, and it may see I'm out of place for an army major to do that. But, you know, you were a diplomat as an attache. That's what you do. So I sat down with him and I said, you know, it's very frustrating to us. Uh, what you're selling is being reverse engineered and used against uh, our allies in Asia. And he says, look, let me tell you a little bit about German um, arms and, and high technology sales policy. We, we know the Chinese will steal and reverse engineer everything we reveal to them. So we don't do it unless we're five years ahead or two or three generations ahead in terms of technology. When a technology is ubiquitous, if it's available all around the world, we're going to make money off it. And if that bothers you Americans, it's tough. So, you know, I wrote that up, got it back to state and the Department of Defense and all the things you do as a military attache. Uh, but for me, it really characterized the dilemma that we face. Um, COCOM, the, you know, the Coordinating Committee on Multilateral Affairs that coordinated with NATO and Japan on limiting high-tech sales to the Soviet Union is gone. The Wassenaar Agreement, yeah, it covers some forms of weapons, but not the technology. So when the Chinese PLA can't manufacture something, and they're having, they had a horrible time with jet turbine fan blades, they had a horrible time with certain forms of solid rocket uh, boosters, certain computer and fire control systems. They couldn't buy a ship from the Italians or the Spanish or the French or the Danish or the Germans. But they would buy the technology or they would buy the subsystem. So it's, it's a real diplomatic battle, I think, um, uh, really that takes place in the State Department and Department of Defense and maybe Commerce that goes on under the table that most Americans aren't aware of. 
So I'm, I'm going to bounce around a little bit and return to this idea of kind of uh, forecasting or future gazing. If we keep the time frame to kind of a reasonable, um, you know, time horizon, uh, and we look out to say five years, and you look at the US-China relationship, how does China want that relationship to be different in five years than it is today? They want to be an absolute equal. Um, and they want to be able to uh, essentially to discuss policy. And, you know, the, the preference would be to actually delineate sectors and spheres of interest in Asia. And, and quite frankly, we are not going to do that. Um, so that will be a continual um, tug of war from a diplomatic standpoint that will show up in the military sector. Now, I, I have one monograph that uh, the Army War College pub published, Taking the Fight to the Enemy. It's, um, it's really about uh, future ambitions of some in the People's Liberation Army. And, and I came by that book in a very interesting way. Whenever I managed to get into China, I spent enough time in People's Liberation Army bookstores at their National Defense University, Academy of Military Science, that I always, you know, if there's some, what I consider to be boring economic meeting that I know is going to be nothing but party propaganda, I skip the meeting. I know my way around Beijing. <laughs> I take a few hours, go to the bookstore, get what I want, and they don't bother me, you know, I mean... Every once in a while, I, I'm always under surveillance, but they'll make sure I got their guy as a taxi driver, but they know what I'm doing. Um, so I was in the PLA National Defense University bookstore near the Summer Palace, just north of it a little bit. And uh, I'm kind of wandering around and looking at books and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a speed reader in Chinese. Uh, and this Navy senior captain, this equivalent of a rear admiral, comes up to me and he says, where are you from? You know, and I said, I'm, I mean, we're talking Chinese. I said, I'm from the U.S. I used to be an attache here. And, you know, and he says, well, tell me what you're looking for. What are you interested in? I said, I'm I'm interested in ideas on, you know, future warfare, what, what the PLA is thinking about in terms of future warfare. And he picks up this little book. It couldn't have been, oh, 200, 250 pages uh, in Chinese. And he says, this is what we're reading in our capstone course. It, and so I, you know, what the hell? I bought the book, came back, um, talked about it to the director of the Austin Net Assessment and OSD. And he said, why don't you write something on that? So I did. And then uh, they said, you know, if you would like, you can... Um, edit that and uh, take out some of the things that we think are more sensitive and let SSI publish it. Uh, and I, I thought about how to frame it because there are other books like that, the um, Unrestricted Warfare. I, so I, I talk about a few of them, but really what this book in particular and this author who was, the author was at the time a senior, well, a colonel and then a senior colonel at the Academy of Military Science, which is their doctrine institute for the Central Military Commission. He, he went on and on about what capabilities the Chinese military lacked that the U.S. had to reach out and inflict damage on China. 
and he laid out the ways that um, China needed to solve that. And I thought that that is really, you know, first of all, inspirational on their part. And uh, I, I thought it was a useful uh, read because it, for me, it, it represents, it's not the doctrine of the party in the CMC, but it certainly is what many in the military want to see happen in the future and what you can see them developing over time. Now, some of it's not kinetic. A lot of it is cyber. Uh, some of it is attacks on uh, uh, critical infrastructure. Some of it is what they call uh, legal warfare, using established international law to, to, to develop positions that would facilitate Chinese policy and military actions. You know, it sounds a lot like what we call A2AD, anti-access and area denial. Uh, how similar is China's conceptualization of what you've just described to our conceptualization of, you know, of what we have labeled A2AD? Well, that's not what they call it. <laughs> I mean, we call it that. They call it Fan Jieru, uh, counter-intervention. See, they, they look back at the Opium War, 1842, and then subsequent invasions of China by the French, the Boxer Rebellion, uh, as interventions in domestic Chinese politics and Chinese interests, which include Taiwan and South China Sea and the East China Sea. So their policy is not so much based on A2AD. It's countering any U.S. intervention. Um, I mean, a Chinese admiral who was really an army officer for his whole career came up with this concept of the two island chains, you know, being able to establish sea and air control inside the first island chain running uh, from Japan through the Philippines and on down to Singapore and uh, sea denial, air denial in the second island chain running out through around Guam. Uh, but it, you know, it's took them, them a very long time to be able to articulate those policies, but now they're exercising it with battle groups at sea, um, aircraft and bombers with uh, uh, over-the-horizon targeting capability, satellites that'll help them find ships, uh, missiles that theoretically uh, and have been shown to be able to hit a, a moving ship. Uh, and the and the sensor systems in space, the air, and on land to be able to facilitate that. So it's a very new dimension of warfare, if it came to that. Well, so since we've been talking about sort of, um, you know, military, I guess, military strategy, uh, I want to kind of maybe adopt for, you know, for a moment here, kind of a Paul Mill approach and, and talk a little bit about the way that politics and the military or politics and military strategy overlay on one another and influence one another. We were talking very briefly offline and you were, you mentioned uh, Xi Jinping's uh, reforms when he um, sort of ascended uh, to his current position. Can you can you kind of expand on that? Give listeners a sense of um, you know the 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 nature and the scope of those reforms. Well, one of Xi Jinping's big problems is when he took over as the uh, Communist Party General Secretary and the chairman 
the Central Military Commission, he had been a deputy for a while, and he realized that he inherited uh, a bunch of generals that had actually bribed their way into senior leadership positions. And in order to raise enough money to bribe their superiors, everybody that worked for them in a command position had contributed to their bribe. So, so he literally, some of them were competent. Some of them were absolutely incompetent and he didn't know who was who. So the first thing he did was bring in uh, people that he knew from his early days associated with the People's Liberation Army down in Fujian uh, when he was a political commissar down there. And by then they were generals anyway, but he trusted them and he knew them. And he replaced his uh, National Defense University president and the Academy of Military Science president. And then he gave a major speech that was picked up in almost all newspapers in China and said that uh, leaders in the People's Liberation Army uh, were guilty of what he called five incapables. They, he felt they were incapable of judging the battlefield situation, that they were incapable of understanding senior leader intent because that really wasn't the way the Chinese thought at the time. It's like, here's what you're told to do, go do it. Uh, that they couldn't make operational decisions. They were incapable of deploying troops on the battlefield and they couldn't deal with unexpected situations. And, and compounding that, they he felt they were resistant to modern uh, C4, C5, ISR and understanding you know, a common picture of the battlefield and joint operations. And did she, uh, Xi Jinping, face any pushback uh, when he when he began to do this? Well, there wasn't a chance to be pushback. He just retired him. Um, he he at that point was in a position where he brought in two uh, vice chairmen of the Central Military Commission, and and he got that done. He got it done in a lot of ways. Sometimes he had the Central Discipline Inspection Commission go investigate people and arrested them. Other times he offered a deal where you're retiring and you either go to jail or you retire. Uh, but, but basically he got it done. He's just still not satisfied. If we, um, if we sort of accept the premise that the Chinese military is more militarily capable now than they were, uh, you know, a decade or more ago. How instrumental in that um, sort of improvement in terms of re and refinement of, of, of military capabilities were these reforms? It, it was instrumental. It took him about three years um, after that, four years almost, to implement uh, major changes. He got rid of the general staff system. A, in a, in a, he put in a joint staff system that is very much like ours. He reduced the number of um, uh, subordinate, uh, shall I say, uh, 
almost silos of control from logistics to support to, uh, to construction and put them all in, under the joint staff system with him in charge. And so he, he, he literally almost did what we do in the United States. And I mean, one scholar has called it uh, China's Goldwater Nichols. And it almost was. So it was a very big deal. And for that, there was resistance. But he didn't get rid of the people. He just kept working at it. I'm I'm really fascinated by this, you know, subject of, um, and it's particularly uh, interesting, I think, in China of individuals and sort of personality-driven, um, you know, military capabilities and military effectiveness and uh, the role that individuals have on on enhancing or potentially eroding that. Um, so I'm, I'm going to, maybe we'll wrap up with this question, but it's one last one about Xi, um, and kind of more of a general one is Xi Jinping, a good strategist. Does he have a, a, a you know, a, a bright military mind, so to speak in, 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 in your estimation? Um, I think that over the years he's acquired a broad sense of ends, ways, and means, what we would call strategy. And one of the most important things he's been able to do, and that also followed his predecessors, is integrate it with his broader economic and social goals. Well, Larry, I think uh, we will leave it there. I just want to thank you again uh, for taking some time out of your schedule and 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 chatting with me for for the MWI podcast. Uh, I found the conversation fascinating and and really really enjoyed it. So thank you. All right. It's good talking to you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.